When you look at the detransitioners, and these are kids who were affirmed. They are recognizing that their original mental health issues were never addressed. They were placed on an assembly line toward medicalization. They may have a whole slew of medical problems from the hormones that they're on and from the surgeries that they went through. We can't ignore that. Today, I sit down with Dr. Miriam Grossman, a child and adolescent psychiatrist and author of You're Teaching My Child What? In this two-part episode, we dive into the origins of gender ideology, why many countries in Europe have started sounding alarm bells about gender-affirming care, and why there is a growing push in America to teach even kindergartners about gender and sexuality. It's a worldview, and that worldview is that children are sexual from cradle to grave. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Miriam Grossman, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. So happy to be here, Jan. Thanks for having me. So, of course, many of our viewers might be familiar uh, with you from this recent film, What is a Woman? And, you know, you, you seem to have a bit of a different perspective than many of the other experts. And uh, uh, so I guess I want to find out, to start, you know, who is Miriam Grossman? What makes you tick? How did you come to your expertise? I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. I've been working in psychiatry for almost 40 years. I was a psychiatrist for students at UCLA for 12 years. I became aware that many of the students that were ending up in my office due to depression or anxiety or insomnia um, were there as a result of the sexual decisions that they had made young people who were hooking up with strangers, with people that they hardly knew, um, and then dealing with their feelings about that later on, dealing with uh, the possibility that they had a sexually transmitted infection or actually having been diagnosed with an STI, uh, worrying about whether they may have HIV, worrying about being pregnant or actually being pregnant and terminating the pregnancy either one or multiple times. Now, mind you, my patients were um, very bright, accomplished, ambitious 
young people. Okay, UCLA accepts, I think, the top, I don't know, two to three percent of all high school seniors in the state. Very smart kids, very well informed about so many issues. But in this particular issue, they were not well informed. For example, the idea that one can go out and be sexually active with, with just about anybody, um, whether you, you know their history or not, as long as you use a condom, it's okay, you'll be safe, just go ahead, have a great time. This is false information. Even with a condom, um, the protection against pregnancy and certain sexually transmitted infections is rather poor. And certainly there's no protection against the emotional repercussions of engaging in intimate behavior with someone uh, who you don't know, and then you end up you know, wanting to see them again, feeling some sort of attachment, and that person doesn't even care to know, you know your name or your phone number. This is misinformation. Um, the idea that all types of sexual behavior put you at equal risk for infection, the idea that uh, a pregnancy, that terminating a pregnancy, having an abortion, um, is, is sort of like you know, getting your wisdom teeth removed. And I decided to dive into it and look at what is the history here? How did this all happen? I ended up writing a book, um, two books. The first book was called Unprotected. Um, a campus psychiatrist reveals how political correctness in her profession endangers every student. I explained how um, certain aspects of my profession, especially sexual health, really was no longer about protecting health, it was about ideology. And then I wrote a second book specifically about sex education and the history of sex education. Uh, and, and that book is called, You're Teaching My Child What? Uh, uh, because it's mostly about the information that, that targets younger kids in schools. That book was written in 2009. And there's a chapter there called Genderland, in which I went into the uh, topic of what is gender, what ideas are being promoted to young children about their gender identity. And I warned parents at that time that parents need to have their eyes opened about the ideology that exists in sex education, dangerous ideology that their kids, their families are going to pay a high price for. So in preparation for our interview, I read this chapter of your last book, um, and the incredible thing about it for me was that, you know, a lot of what we're talking about today, which in 2009 I had absolutely no idea about, you know, was pretty much already baked in, right? And so let's start here. You say that there's dangerous ideas. What are these dangerous ideas? You know, you're right. It was below the radar for nearly everybody. But there were a few people, um, brave, courageous individuals, who brought a lot of this information to light. And I do want to mention Dr. Judith Reisman because she uh, devoted her life to exposing uh, Kinsey, the work of Kinsey, which all of this started with Kinsey. Um, and 
she just passed away a year ago, and I want to acknowledge her, her work. Regarding gender ideology, the person who came up with the theory was Dr. John Money, and he came up with this idea that a person's biology, their body, their chromosomes, um, is completely separate from their feeling of whether they are male or female. John Money uh, was a troubled individual. He grew up in a home in which his father was a, uh, an alcoholic who uh, uh, had, had aggressive outbursts in which he would beat John and his mother. And so John Money's image of masculinity was that of a monster. He wrote about how uh, he was uncomfortable with his masculine identity, with his, with his masculine genitals. So he had what we would now call gender dysphoria. And uh, so he came up with a theory by which he himself could feel better about being male. And his theory was that, like I said, biology is completely separate from identity. And in fact, identity overrides biology. And John Money had a, a, a prominent position at Johns Hopkins uh, in, in the 50s and 60s. And he uh, was part of a team that worked with what then used to be called kids who were hermaphrodites, now called intersex. And these are very, very rare individuals that are born with um, disorders of sexual development due to a medical condition. They either, ha either have abnormal chromosomes or abnormal um, endocrine uh, disorders. And because of that, when they're born, their genitalia are not distinctly male or female. So John Money, this was his specialty. John Money uh, set out to prove his theory of gender identity to the world. The perfect case showed up in his office in, I think it was 1967, and it was a family from Canada. The parents were in their early 20s, blue-collar family, um, high school graduates. The mom had given birth to twin boys about a year and a half earlier. Normal boys, no problem. So these parents took the boys to be circumcised when they were about eight months old. And the boys' names were uh, Brian and Bruce. And there was something wrong with the equipment that day, and there was uh, a malfunction. And Bruce's penis was burnt off. Uh, it was just burned, you know, beyond recognition. The parents took Bruce home. Um, wh what were they going to do now? What in the world were they going to do? They turned to different doctors who, you know, gave them various advice. But finally, one day, uh, they were watching television. And Dr. Money is on television explaining how a boy could actually be raised as a girl 
if you start early enough in the boy's life. A boy who has normal chromosomes, XY chromosomes, who's born with normal genitalia, could conceivably um, be raised as a girl, um, you know, as long as the child is given, you know, feminine. Remember, this was the time of, of you know, stereotypes, okay? So um, Dr. Money was saying dress the girl in, in, in pink dresses and give her dolls and give her a girl's name. The boy will be perfectly fine as a girl. And so the parents were uh, very excited about that. And let's remember also that these were um, relatively, you know, uneducated, blue-collar family. In interviews that were done later with the parents, they explained how impressed they were with John Money. John Money was the quintessential um, professor, sophisticated, worldly, well-spoken, very convincing. And they went down to Johns Hopkins to see Dr. Money and have a consultation. They thought that Dr. Money was the answer to their prayers. But as it turned out, they were the answer to Dr. Money's prayers because he was obviously for years searching for a case like this in which he would have two kids who are essentially clones of each other, okay? Identical twins, so identical genetic endowments, identical um, prenatal environment, and then both twins being raised in the same environment. So this was just perfect. And also this was a time in which society was debating nature versus nurture. So John Money's hypothesis was that we are born like with a blank slate in terms of gender. So he told the parents that they must immediately um, uh, change Bruce's name to a girl's name, put him in girl's clothing, tell everybody that he's a girl, and never, ever tell him the truth about his birth and what happened to him. And Dr. Money said, if you tell Brenda, they ended up raising, changing his name to Brenda, if you tell her this whole thing, you know, you'll just sabotage this whole thing. Otherwise, he promised she would grow up to be a normal, healthy woman. She will not be fertile. Uh, but otherwise, she'll be normal and healthy and adjusted as a woman. So they did that. He did recommend that Bruce be castrated, have his uh, testicles removed, have his penis removed, and have a, um, a kind of elementary... Uh, um, uh, female genitalia constructed. And so he went through that surgery at Johns Hopkins. So what happened to the twins? What happened with this family? The family would travel down to see John Money once a year. And during those visits, John Money would meet with the twins individually. He began to report this in the literature that he was conducting this experiment. And he would report as the years went by that the twins were doing great and that Brenda was 
adjusting beautifully, that she never uh, questioned anything about her identity, that she was very feminine, she fit in with the rest of the girls, she was doing well at school and at home. When the twins were about 10 years old, um, he published uh, a, a larger report and uh, in, re in response to all of these reports that he was putting out about how well uh, Brenda was doing, uh, he was getting a huge amount of uh, attention from both the professional and lay press. He had proven that his gender theory is correct. He had proven that whether you're male or female all boils down to the environment that you're raised in. Um, and he was getting all kinds of awards and he got um, uh, NIH funding, continuous funding from the NIH for 25 years actually. His ideas about gender were institutionalized, were immediately adopted within uh, an entire field of medicine. Okay, within mental health, um, psychiatry, uh, uh, and, and, and outside of medicine as well, of course, in you know, child rearing and education and uh, you know, sociology and um, feminism. So we didn't hear anything else about the twins until 1999. In 1999, uh, Brenda came out and, was dis and, and started to speak about what had happened. Brenda was no longer Brenda. Brenda was now David. Okay, the entire thing was a hoax. It was a hoax. Uh, Brent, so-called Brenda, had not adjusted to this female identity that had been foisted on her at all. She, or he, he I'm going to say he, had always been very masculine, very uh, uh, aggressive, actually. His mannerisms, okay, the way he walked, the way he talked. Um, kids would make fun of him and, and call him cavewoman. He preferred his brother's toys. He didn't want to wear the dresses that his parents put him in. He would rip them off. He wanted rough and tumble play. He talked about wanting to be a car mechanic or an, a garbage man, you know, when he was in elementary school. So we're being forced to, to return to these stereotypes. But in this case, in telling the story, it's very important um, that even though the parents were following John Money's um, instructions to the T, that they were having huge problems with this kid. And uh, the problems just continued to accumulate. He even wanted to pee standing up. He wanted to learn how to shave. He would stand by and, you know, as his father was, his, you know, his brother would be watching his dad shave and his mom would be saying, Brenda, you know, I'm making cookies. Come join me in the kitchen and let's make cookies together. And Brenda, David, would say, no, no, I, I, I want to watch dad shaving. And um, this is all documented in the book by uh, John Colapinto called uh, As Nature Made Him, the boy that was raised as a girl. 
as nature made him. It's out of print, but you can still get it. Unbelievably important book, John Colapinto. And uh, what, had, what was going on with those yearly visits uh, to Dr. Money was not only um, were, the, were the twins um, very uncomfortable in John Money's presence because he was uh, abusing them sexually, forcing them to undress, to get naked, and to um, act out different um, sexual positions. These were kids that he was doing this with. Uh, they were afraid to tell their parents. The parents had no idea this was going on. And eventually, the twins refused to go, go down anymore. And that is why the family stopped going down when they were about 10 years old to see Dr. Money is that the twins simply refused. They were being sexually abused. Uh, and, and eventually, the family began to uh, take David to a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and they, they, they told these professionals what the true history was. As David uh, entered puberty and realized that he was romantically attracted to girls, and he thought, you know, he was being told all his life that he is a girl, that seems to have really been the final straw for him, and he became suicidal. His therapist told the parents, you have to tell the twins the truth. Because uh, this was affecting the whole family. It wasn't just affecting Brenda, David. It was affecting his brother as well in a very big way. In fact, it's funny, you know, as the twins later talked about it, it turned out that uh, David, Brenda, was actually much more kind of tough and assertive than his brother was. And um, he would step in and beat kids up, Brenda would, AKA David, and beat kids up for beating up his brother. Anyway, so the therapist told the parents, um, you have to tell the kids. So one day, the dad and the mom each took one of the twins and told them the truth. And years later, and you can see videos about this on YouTube, about David recalling that moment in which he was told that he was born male. And he says at that moment, he felt such a sense of relief that he wasn't crazy. He had always been a boy, despite what everyone had told him. And I've told this story so many times, Jan, and every time I tell it, I do get chills, which is what I have right now. And he immediately on the spot made the decision to going back and living as a boy. Got a boy's wardrobe, cut his hair, and took the name David. So why the name David and not, why not go back to Bruce, which was his given name? He took the name David. He said because he felt that until that point, he was fighting such a monster in his life, this monster of being led to believe that he's something that he's not by everyone around him, including Dr. Money. 
that he identified with David fighting Goliath. And so he took the name David. And he obviously stopped taking estrogen, um, needed to have medical treatments and surgeries, which he went through, you know, needed to be put on uh, male hormone. And he eventually married a woman with two children. And he was the janitor in a slaughterhouse. And he was father to these two adopted children. It sounds like it has a good ending, but it did not at all have a good ending. Um, what happened was that his brother, uh, Brian, ended up overdosing. He became an addict and overdosed. Um, the impact of what he had gone through in his childhood with Dr. Money and with all the uh, terrible things that had happened within the family, he paid a high price for that. And then two years later, David committed suicide. He shot himself. So what can we take from this story? First of all, we, we have to acknowledge the unbelievable arrogance of a professional, high-standing academic, widely uh, respected, accomplished, the arrogance that he had to exploit this family um, in order to, uh, to hold them up as proof of his theory. The, the immoral nature of, uh, first of all, obviously, uh, you know, sexually abusing them, um, but also lying uh, and creating this hoax in, in the psychological literature regarding the success of this experiment. So John Money was a very bad man. And yet, the entire industry, the entire gender uh, ideology, and all these clinics and hospitals and gender education and the flags and you know this whole movement this which has become a civil rights movement basically is entirely based on a concept that was never proven in fact the opposite was proven this whole concept of having an identity as male or female being completely separate from your biology has actually been proven incorrect by John Money's experiment. But because he was so successful in publicizing and promoting his fake results, and because his fake results were um, institutionalized and uh, uh, became doctrine, academic doctrine within mental health and within sociology and all these other fields, um, that's how we got to how we, where we are now. There's been a lot of studies that have been done in the realm of hormones, in the realm of behavior, the intersection of these things that speak to um, the connection between biology and identity. 
right? I want to get you to briefly tell me what the scientific literature has to say about that actually, because we rarely hear about that. At the time that John Money was uh, promoting his gender theory, there was a belief that there's very little information on the Y chromosome. There was a belief that it is a genetic wasteland, that's what it was called, and that the only information on the Y chromosome had to do with, you know, um, overtly, you know, male, you know, facial hair and genitalia and, you know, lower voice and things like that. And that otherwise it was empty, there was nothing there. We, um, since that time, have mapped out the human genome and the Y chromosome is packed with information that's unique to males. It has an impact on every single system in the body. Okay, so we're not just talking about the reproductive system or growing a beard or having a lower voice. We're talking about the heart, the kidneys, okay, the GI system, uh, the brain, uh, uh, the immune system, and the list goes on and on. So we know now that whether a person has two X's or an X and a Y in just about every cell, every cell that has a nucleus in the body, which is nearly every cell, that that has an impact on their physiology, on a cellular level, on an organ level, on a physiology level. And there's a new specialty within the field of medicine, and it is called gender-specific medicine. It should be called sex-specific medicine, and that's another issue. The words sex and gender, which have two completely different meanings, they're being conflated now. But anyway, this new specialty, gender-specific medicine, is focused on what I just explained, the importance of one's um, chromosomes uh, in terms of their, uh, you know, how every organ system works. And in terms of, for example, uh, pharmaceuticals, the development of new drugs, um, treatment for cancer, uh, treatment for like women who have been badly burned do worse than men. We know that a certain arrhythmias, cardiac arrhythmias, uh, are different in men and in women. I mean, there's a whole, there's a textbook that's about this thick called Principles of Gender-Specific Medicine. So, you see, this is very important. As this gender ideology has uh, uh, grown and become so prominent and to the point that a, a majority, there was a poll, New York Times came out with a poll a few days ago, um, Sierra poll. They asked as a concept, do you, do you believe that gender is a completely different thing than biology, than sex? And in the 65 and over group, only, I think it was 18% agreed. But in the 18 to 29 age group, 61% of people do believe that gender is separate than sex, meaning John Money's theory. And trust me, if we were to ask 
the younger, you know, if we were to ask like 10 to 18 year olds, it would be 90%. So John Money's theory, which was proven incorrect, and there has never been any other experiment that would uphold his theory, John Money's theory is what a majority of young people now have been indoctrinated to believe. And I don't use that word lightly. I use the word indoctrinated because they're being told uh, these ideas, which are false, over and over and over again by people who are in positions of authority, a child that that might challenge their teacher, as if that's really going to happen, right? Because little kids adore their teachers and little kids trust their teachers and they're not going to challenge them. But let's say there is that sort of odd child that's coming from a family where they've heard something different and they might stand up and say, oh, you know, I, but in church, you know, or I learned from the Bible that um, God said, male and female, I created them. Um, Well, what about that? That child is going to be made to feel like an outsider. They're going to be ostracized. They're they're going to be told that they are transphobic or, you know, racist or, you know, any any one of all of those things, you know, those um, slurs. Now, I don't know of any child who wants to become an outcast at school. So when I use the word indoctrinated, that's what I'm speaking about. That this idea of gender identity being separate than biology and that one can choose one's gender identity. And that by the way, gender identity is not limited to male or female. It's a spectrum, there's many different identities. That this is all presented as truth. Just the way kids might learn, you know, what's the capital of California, Sacramento, right? What is five squared? Okay, they're taught the same way they're taught those are facts. It is a fact. They are, they are told that gender is, is between the ears and sex is between the legs and they are not related to each other and that you know, you may choose to go on a wonderful gender journey of exploring which gender, which sex you are, which gender you are, and that should you decide uh, that you are another gender, then these options are open to you in terms of uh, medical care. And the only option there, which we will speak about, is gender affirming care, only gender affirmation. So this concept of gender-affirming care that you just mentioned is being presented as something there is scientific consensus around, like this is the way to do things because it has been determined scientifically that it should be, you've made the case uh, that absolutely that's not true. But so what is gender-affirming care? Explain that, you know, briefly and then, you know, What is the consensus? Is there a consensus? Gender affirming care means that whatever the child comes up with in terms of their identity, no matter how old they are 
or what other conditions they may suffer from. That is their identity. We accept it. We affirm it and we give them the treatment that they would like to get. So if they're feeling nervous about puberty starting, we give them blockers. If they would like to, um, after a few years of blockers, appear more as the opposite sex, we give them opposite sex hormones. And then the surgeries later on. Because children change their minds about all sorts of things all the time, right? I mean, and frankly, adults do too, actually. But but children especially as they're discovering themselves. I mean, of course, yeah. of course they do. And uh, especially adolescence, adolescent development is uh, in large part a search for identity. Who am I? Where do I fit in? What do I want to do in my future? What career am I going to pursue? What ethnicity am I from uh, kids who might be from mixed ethnicity? What religion am I? There's a search to determine identity. Who, who am I? And that's a very central uh, part of adolescence and young adulthood. And it's healthy to, to undergo that search and to go through it. Uh, but this is an altogether different kind of thing when we talk about gender identity. Because with gender identity, we're, we're telling kids that they need to determine whether they're male or female. We're proposing to, to, to young people that that's actually something that can be dependent on feelings, inclinations, um, that it's fluid. Our girls now are being led to believe that if they are not stereotypically female, they have to think about this. They might, they might very well be boys and that they will fit in better with boys. Their life will be uh, more consistent with, with their feelings and who they feel they are if they transition to being male, as if that's even possible. So uh, you'll have to note, again, the manipulation of language and the Orwellian use of language when the term gender affirming is used. They're experimenting on the body and people are paying a massively high price for these medical experimentations. And so all of this is just so upside down. And I feel, Jan, like I'm living in a parallel universe. So one universe is the whole gender industry, which includes Washington and includes uh, the president coming out not a long time ago, as well as his assistant uh, director of health and human services, Dr. Levine, coming out and instructing parents that if they have a child uh, who, who is questioning their gender, then that it's crucial that they, as soon as possible, get them gender affirming care and basically put them on the path toward medical interventions. Almost all the professional organizations are on board with that. Um, the American Academy of Pediatricians, the American Psychological Association, the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the American Association of uh, Endocrinology, um, you know, 
All these organizations have been captured by the ideology. So let me jump in here. You know, when I read your Genderland chapter in your 2009 book, everything that we're discussing here, um, including, you know, biological basis for behavior and masculinity and femininity, um, as well as these uh, medical interventions and gender affirming care, all of that exists in 2009. But somehow, it's not a central thing in our society or in our social discourse. But today, it, it very much is. And as you were saying, these, all these institutions, which are the you know, kind of key uh, medical institutions in, in our country, are following this you know, ostensibly false model. And it's hard to fathom how that's even possible, given literature around the biology and, the, the, and those realities. Okay. Until the 90s, um, we didn't offer uh, hormones and surgeries for transitioning into the other sex uh, un unless you were an adult. So th this treatment was not at all available to kids. And, and typically it would be men in their 30s and 40s. When I went to medical school uh, in the 70s and 80s, Gender identity disorder or transsexualism was something that it was considered, and it was, very, very rare. And it was something that we read about in the textbooks and didn't really pay much attention to. And that includes my training in psychiatry and child psychiatry. And I, don't, I can't recall one lecture ever on that subject. Um, so what happened is that these individuals, these men that would transition to living as women uh, in the 90s and before, their mental health did not improve as much as was expected, as much as what was wanted, because they didn't pass easily as women. They had gone through male puberty, male adolescence, and uh, that masculinizes him, um, both internally and externally, but let's just focus now on the external. So, uh, you know, it, it, once a, a man has, a boy has gone through male puberty, his voice is permanently lowered. He has all the facial hair, body hair, bigger hands, taller, uh, longer limbs, um, uh, you know, the, the muscle mass, broader shoulders, and all these things made it more difficult for individuals to then pass as women, even if they, had, if, if they went on estrogen and went on um, anti-testosterone medication and had operations. So, so they weren't doing that well in terms of their mental health. They still had very high um, uh, levels of depression, anxiety, and, 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 and suicidal ideation, and actual suicides. So doctors in, uh, in Holland uh, came up with the idea of if only these individuals could be identified at an early age before puberty, and then they could be prevented from going through their puberty and going through female puberty instead, then they would be able to pass much more easily 
when they were adults. And maybe their mental health would be better and their risk of suicide would be better. So that's where all this came from. So those researchers in Holland came up with the following plan, which is now called the Dutch Protocol. Their plan was, you have to identify kids at an early age uh, who, who have experienced uh, unhappiness and discomfort with their sex for many years, and who, uh, as they start their same-sex puberty, they get worse. So they're allowed, just like at the beginning of puberty, uh, certain signs of puberty that start you know, in the beginning, and that that heightens their, their discomfort with themselves. So you identify those kids. They should not have uh, mental health problems aside from their gender issues. So they identified a small group because this is a, it's an unusual, it's a rare condition, or it was then, for a, uh, a, a prepubescent child to suffer from their biological sex and to insist that they are either the opposite sex or that they want to be the opposite sex and for that to persist over years. That was a, a, an uncommon, a rare condition. So clearly it was, it was difficult for them to assemble this group of kids, but they did do that. And uh, in the end, they got uh, 55 subjects, which is a small number of subjects to have. But what they did is they took those kids and I want to underscore here, this is very important. These subjects in this, uh, the Dutch studies that became known as the Dutch protocol were kids who had gender dysphoria as small children, okay, at, in elementary school, not developing it as teenagers at, or as early adolescents the way that the kids are now currently. And uh, they did not have other significant mental health issues. So those are two really important criteria that you need to keep in mind as I'm talking about this. So they took those kids and they put them on puberty blockers at age 12. And that, those puberty blockers uh, had never been used before for that purpose. And to this day, puberty blockers are not licensed or FDA approved in any country to be used with gender dysphoria. They are only approved um, for other uses. For example, there's a condition called precocious puberty where kids who are five, six, or seven years old begin to go through puberty because they have abnormal hormonal levels and those are documented. It's a medical condition. Okay, so it's approved for that. So uh, the Dutch in the 90s took this group of kids and gave them puberty blockers at age 12. At age 16, they gave them opposite sex hormone, testosterone for the girls and estrogen for the boys. And then at 18, they made surgery was available if they chose to go through surgery. And what they found, I mean, there were a lot of problems with this study that I'm not going to go into, but it's, it's well documented that there were a lot of issues with the way that this study was um, designed and conducted. For example, there was no control group. 
They didn't take another group of 50 kids who were presenting in the same way and just allow them to go through normal adolescence uh, and young adulthood and, and, and see how they turn out, what happens to them. There are other studies, there are a lot of studies, there's actually 11 studies on these type of kids in which we see that if we don't uh, give them medical and surgical options and we simply allow them to go through regular puberty and young adulthood, that the vast majority of them, around 80%, that's an average, some studies show in the 90s the percent, their dysphoria with their bodies, their unhappiness and discomfort with their bodies will resolve. It, it will resolve. They will reach a sense of, of, of uh, acceptance and uh, uh, comfort with their biology. A lot of them are going to be gay and lesbian. Uh, not all, but a lot of them. And they will go on, you know, they have their fertility and they have their sexual uh, functioning is intact. And we know that from 11 studies. But in this particular study, the, the, the Dutch study, they did this, this uh, intervention with this group of kids. And they followed them for a year and a half, uh, which is not long at all. Uh, and they found that after a year and a half, their dysphoria was less. Okay. So what happened was, this Dutch protocol was immediately adopted in other countries, including in the US, as this is the solution for these kids. And by the way, let me give you some numbers here. So the Tavistock Clinic in London was the largest clinic in the world, and it was the only clinic for gender dysphoric kids in all of the United Kingdom. So. When it opened in 1989, that first decade, 89 to 99, they had an average of 14 kids a year. If you look at the most recent data that's available, which I think is um, 2019 to 2020, the Tavistock Clinic that year had 2,700 kids lined up for treatment of their gender dysphoria. Now, those kids that are presenting at, at the clinics now and pretty much in the, the past decade or so are not the same kids that the Dutch protocol was focused on. They are kids that developed gender dysphoria as teenagers. They didn't have a history in, early on in their life of having any discomfort with being boys or girls. That, so it's a different cohort just based on that. Number two, these are kids who have a whole long list of, uh, uh, of mental health issues. They're on the autism spectrum, many of them. They have depression. They have anxiety. They uh, have been through trauma. They've been sexually abused or molested. So that also means that we're working with a completely different type of patient. Those patients were explicitly excluded from the Dutch protocol. And yet we are using the Dutch protocol, their conclusions, 
to go ahead and treat these kids medically with uh, hormones and surgeries that in many cases are going to sterilize them and in many cases are going to uh, affect their uh, sexual development, their ability to develop a uh, sexual arousal, sexual response. We're creating a generation of sterilized, asexual people. Tavistock is being sued as we speak, right? And it's not just the UK. This has been tried in numerous countries, in the Nordic countries and so forth. And from what I understand, everybody's kind of pulling back on this because they saw, and they saw some really bad results, like really negative outcomes for these children and people, if I understand it correctly. So this goes back to that parallel universe that I told you I, I feel like I'm living in. So in this country, you know, our professional organizations and our health and human services um, are, are coming out and saying, we, we, we need to simply af affirm these kids immediately and make available to them at an early age hormones and surgeries. Now, you are correct that Tavistock is being sued and Tavistock is closing because of uh, deep concerns about the safety of the treatments that were being provided to kids there. That was the conclusion of the Cass report. Uh, uh, a pediatrician, uh, Dr. Cass, was requested to, uh, to review what was actually going on at Tavistock. Clinicians there who at one point you know, tried to speak up and they went to the administration and said, this is not okay. I don't feel comfortable with what's going on here. We are basically you know, railroading these families into medical treatments that we're doing it too fast and we need to address all the mental health issues first. And they were ignored and they wrote articles and there was a huge drama there. To their credit, many people who brought this to light, they're heroes. And also what happened at Tavistock is that uh, one of their previous patients, Kiara Bell, she was transitioned early on to uh, identifying living as a male. I mean, she identified as a male and then she went through that, the whole affirming process and then she realized she regrets it. And she, along with one of the practitioners there, uh, took their case to the high court in England and uh, this is what made it sort of all blow up. And Kiara Bell was brave enough um, to say, you know, I went through this and, and I regret it. What I really needed was I needed help for my mental health issues. And I was led to believe that all my distress was just because of my gender identity. And if I were able to live as a man and pass as a man, and have my breasts removed, I would be happier and my mental health issues would get better. So Tavistock, that's England, but there are other countries that have also are making a turnaround in terms of affirmative care. And they are waving red flags and they're saying, hold on a minute, 
we have to look at this closely. Uh, we need more data. The research that we have is inconclusive, insufficient, and we can't be giving, you know, 10-year-olds or even 8-year-olds, which now in this country, in the U.S., 8-year-olds can get puberty blockers in the U.S. So places like Sweden, Finland, um, France, Belgium, they are doing a 180 when it comes to so-called gender-affirming care. And they are saying the number one treatment has to be mental health treatment for these kids. That has to be number one. And uh, Australia, New Zealand, there's also been um, doctors, doc groups of doctors have, have published statements and recommendations along the same lines. Medical authorities in Sweden, Finland, uh, Britain, uh, Belgium, France, uh, are, are all saying, no, we can't be doing this because it's not safe. We don't have the data. We are harming our kids. We don't have evidence that these interventions uh, uh, are, are actually going to benefit the kids in the long term. I'm not talking about a year and a half. We need 10 years, 20 years down the line. Because the research that we have about these interventions with individuals who are, have gender dysphoria, the, the studies that we have uh, that go down you know, 20, 30 years, and we don't have many, we, we basically only have one really good study from Sweden, shows us that the mental health problems remain consistently high in this population. And uh, most alarming uh, is that the risk of suicide remains 19 times that in the general population. So we really have to ask questions here. We are sterilizing these individuals. We are uh, uh, giving them uh, medical treatments that uh, cause a long list of uh, problem, medical problems, uh, cardiovascular problems, blood clots, heart attacks, uh, cancers, uh, uh, kidney failure. We're putting girls into menopause. There are girls, young women, in their late teens and early 20s who are having to research how do I deal with hot flashes? How do I deal with insomnia, anxiety, uh, uh, you know, uh, vaginal atrophy? This is the so-called uh, uh, gender-affirming care that all the organizations and our Health and Human Services and President are, uh, are, are foisting on doctors like myself, that that is the only acceptable care that we can provide to these young people. You said that this is, gender dysphoria is a rare condition. 
But now, as you explained in Tavistock, these numbers have gone through the roof. Based on everything you've told me right now, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the combination of ideology, indoctrination around the issue of identity, combined with peer pressure, is a result, and th is this the result? Like, is, has there been studies There's, done on this? Well, this is, yeah, there are studies, uh, uh, most notably Lisa Lippman, uh, a physician researcher at Brown University. So she came out with a study in 2018, a very important study. She uh, noted that at that point there were now uh, these parent groups online of parents of kids who suddenly, without any, you know, any previous indication that they were uncomfortable with their sex, in fact, they might have been the most boyish of boys and the most girly girls, suddenly uh, making an announcement that they are either the opposite sex or they're non-binary, non non-binary meaning that they're, that they're neither male nor female. And these parents um, you know, were just blindsided. They just didn't know what the heck is this about. And they would take their kids to gender therapists and the gender therapist would say, yeah, yeah, you know, this is a thing and we're going to affirm your, you don't have a daughter now, you have a son. And when these parents would say, well, hold, you know, hold it, just hold everything. You know, this is my child. I know my child. I know that my child is, for example, I don't know, on the spectrum or was having trouble in school or my child was molested a few years ago. Like, I know my child. And the gender therapist would say, well, if you are not going to accept your daughter as your son, you're the problem. And they would often say this after one or two meetings with the family, and they would say it in front of the child. So these parents uh, would grab their child and run, but they didn't know where to go. So they began to find one another online. And, you know, they were anonymous online because a lot of them were scared to put their name on, on this and admit that they were questioning the process because wherever they turned, whether it was their gender therapist or their guidance counselor at school or their pediatrician, they were told that their reaction is transphobic and that only their daughter knows who she is and that, that uh, if they continue to reject their son, son, and they don't go along with their child's new identity, they are going to increase the chance of their child committing suicide. I've talked to a lot of these parents and uh, I continue talking to them. And this has been, for most of them, the most difficult thing they've ever gone through in their lives. This destroys families, destroys marriages. The child is so indoctrinated that the child is led to believe that if their family, their parents, um, doesn't get on board with this, then their home isn't safe. 
their parents are toxic and they really may want to think about leaving. So Lisa Lippman's study in 2018, she surveyed 100, I think 126 parents uh, and asked them a bunch of questions and she was able to conclude, she, she, you know, th th this was a certain demographic. First of all, uh, unlike the earlier group of kids like that were studied in the Dutch protocol, uh, they were mostly boys. These kids were mostly girls. They were mostly girls. Identified as transgender or non-binary along with or somewhat after a number of their friends did. So they were in friend groups who uh, also had, you know, friends of theirs had also identified uh, as being uh, transgender. And uh, a large number of them had spent enormous amounts of time online. And this is where transgenderism and the COVID lockdowns start to intersect. So uh, the COVID lockdowns with kids not going to school and being online 24 seven, either with friends or with, uh, or watching YouTube videos and being on other platforms, uh, they were being exposed to these uh, ideas about transgenderism and there are hundreds of influencers uh, on YouTube and on other platforms that are describing their journeys and their transition from male to female or female to male. And, you know, oh, you know, I went on estrogen today. I'm so excited. You know, I'm, my breasts are growing or I'm growing facial hair. Like, I can't believe it. This is like the best thing that ever happened to me. So in Lisa Lippman's study, um, the kids were also found to have spent a large amount of time on social media. And there were other things as well, but, but I'll just, you know, the, the, the main things that I want to focus on right now is that they were, uh, by and large, you know, a large number of them were, were females. And that was an, the, the opposite of what we've always seen in the history of transgenderism, always been a ratio of six males to one female. So based on that study, um, Dr. Lippman proposed that these new kids that we're now seeing who are identifying as transgender are a result of a type of social contagion. Now we know already in mental health, we know about social contagions. We know that uh, certain behaviors and beliefs can spread among friend groups. And we know this regarding eating disorders, anorexia, uh, suicide. And so Dr. Lippmann proposed that these current kids that we are seeing that are filling the clinics, that are lining up for puberty blockers and opposite sex hormones and surgeries, she suggested that this is part of a social contagion. So what in the end happened to the use of the Dutch protocol? In many countries, it became kind of the standard of care, except that the, the Dutch themselves, not long ago, um, actually stood up and asked clinicians like in the US and other places, why are you using our research findings 
to, as a basis for what you're now doing with this new population of kids. And mind you, they only followed those kids for a year and a half. And it seems to take eight to 10 years on average to develop regret or to, um, to come out and express that regret. So it takes years. So the Dutch themselves are saying, we need more data. You, you can't be using our conclusions from our research to apply to this current group of kids. Coming up next on American Thought Leaders, what are the current guidelines for treating gender dysphoria in the United States? How are they radically different from standards in other countries like the UK and Sweden? Throughout the United States and Canada, there's no lower age limit for these medical treatments. What should parents do if their child says their gender is different from their biological sex? And why are kids being taught about gender, sexuality, and genitalia at younger and younger ages? By the time they're reaching high school, they have already seen and heard so much. They're molding the child to have a certain attitude. 